All right, well, let, let me go ahead and pray and we'll get started. Uh, this morning's content is going to be a little bit easier to follow, so um, you won't need notes. But uh, I do want to say if anyone is interested in having copies of the expanded uh, notes, which includes uh, pretty much everything I've said, images, various other things that you're seeing on these slides, um, what I'll do is if you're registered, if you register for the class, I can use that as a way to send out the email with, with links or copies to all the documents. Um, or otherwise, if you want to email me and just say, hey, I didn't sign up, but here's my email address. Can you send me a copy? And then as we go through the course, I'll make sure to send out copies so that you can have them to reread, look through. And um, it'll replicate pretty well what I'm what I'm kind of teaching and saying throughout the course. So um, let me go and pray and we'll, we'll, we'll jump into this. Uh, Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, this morning as we continue our discussion about uh, gender and sexuality and marriage, Lord, we ask you to be present. Lord, you help me to speak uh, just with simplicity and truth and honesty. And more than anything else, Lord, uh, I pray that we would we would reflect who you are um, and your will for us. And lastly, we just pray that uh, we would be blessed by your word and that you would guide us into all truth and knowledge and wisdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so... Last, last week, we went through kind of an overview, philosophically speaking, of certain key points in history. And, and like I said last week, it was a very selective review of the philosophers. And what we were doing was just trying to distill out some of the key ideas that have shaped the modern discourse over gender, sexuality, and marriage. Um, so today, what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at the basic framework of the traditional view of marriage. Um, so a lot less what I'd say, new information for you to process. Um, much of what you'll see here kind of towards the end is going to feel like review, but where that's important and where that's okay is as we go into looking at the arguments next week for the kind of contrasting or competing arguments, this way we can kind of see what they're, what they're looking at, um, or not what they're looking at, but rather what they're critiquing. So there's three points of contention uh, in the current kind of debate over gender, sexuality, and marriage. And they're all related to really kind of the three, I would say, basic kind of sticking points for the traditional view. Um, so those three points could be summarized as this. Um, what is the basis of our gender? What is the proper expression of sexuality? And then lastly, the notion of distinct roles for men and women. So these are pretty well-worn paths. You've probably heard these things before. Um, but again, it's, it's helpful to kind of go through this so that next week when we look at the the arguments kind of against, against the traditional uh, positions take on these three things will have a, a better better picture or maybe more clarity on what it is that they're doing and how they're arguing. Um, so, however, before we jump into um, the traditional view, I think one of the things that could be helpful is asking the question, why does Christianity seem to care so much about what we do with our pants? Um, I know when I came to the faith in, in my early 20s and I started reading the Bible, I was like, wow, there seems to be a lot in here about, you know, how and when I take off my pants, right? I was like, why does, why does the Bible seem to be concerned about these things? Because um, that was new to me. And, and it does place an emphasis on these things. And, and so as we begin this conversation, we need to understand that the, the Christian faith did not invent its concern over, the, over these matters, but inherited them from the Old Testament laws. Um, so, to better understand the basis of these concerns, we're going to open by looking at the formative issues that shape some of the laws found in the book of Leviticus. Um, you'll find in the coming weeks, 
the Levitical codes form a backdrop for a lot of New Testament understandings with respect to what is the appropriate expression for sexuality. So why all the weird laws? Have you ever read uh, through the Old Testament, right? Anyone on the January comes around, we do the, the, the reading plan, right? And typically you get to Leviticus and it's like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? And there's a bunch of weird stuff. And, and so there's certain sections, especially in Leviticus, that come across absolutely alien and strange to our modern sensibilities. Um, and, and so for our purpose today, we're going to look at four sections in Leviticus that are relevant for our discussion. Um, so there's really going to be four chapters. Uh, so the first one is going to be Leviticus, Leviticus 12. We're not going to look at it. I just want to highlight these things. Um, I'd encourage you to go back and, and actually read the chapters to kind of get more, more detail with what I'm referencing here. But Leviticus 12 uh, are purification rites after childbirth. And, and so there's kind of laws given saying, if you give birth, these are the days of purification for you, for the child. Here's the offering that's to be made. And after that's done, you, you're able to kind of come back into the temple space for worship again. Um, one of the things that's interesting is it does make a distinction between the male and female child. And the, the time for purification for the female child is actually twice as long as the male. Now, what happens is we read that and we tend to assume with our modern framework that this must have meant that they devalued or valued women less. It's because they're more unholy. But what's interesting is when you look at the, the prescription for the offering that's to be made for male and female children, it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. And so while our tendency is to read it that way, that says more about our assumptions about them than it does about their actual assumptions about things that are taking place. Um, and as we move forward, the reason I highlight this is because we're going to see that when you kind of look at all the laws together and we situate it within the context in, in like the historical context, there's a whole lot of other issues related to religion and sexuality that are at play that I think are a much better way of understanding that what's going on here. Now, we don't it doesn't give us the specific reason why purification for a female child is longer. But we have to be careful about imposing assumptions that are more, uh, let's say, uh, common to our day than back then, if that makes any sense. So Leviticus 12, purification rights after childbirth. The second section is Leviticus 15. Uh, and this one's really weird. It's purification rights dealing with bodily discharges. So the first section of that chapter deals with uh, what uh, discharges of the flesh and what seems to be in view there are issues of like, let's say, eruptions in the skin due to illness, uh, disease, infection, those sorts of things. And so there's laws given for that. And then the second section deals with discharges of semen and menstrual blood. And in both of those cases as well, there's laws given for times of purification before one can enter back into, um, into worship. Now... Where this is strange is if you've read Genesis, God makes everything and he says what? It's good. So why then does God seem to look at what's a natural development for human beings through puberty and then seem to call that unclean? It seems like maybe God's a little disjointed, right? Um, so hold that in mind because just as Leviticus 12 um, kind of makes sense in the context we're going to be situating it, so does this. So again, the common theme here is birth, sexual emissions, including menstrual cycle, 
right? And then that leads into the other two chapters that I think are pertinent for us are Leviticus 18 and 20. And these are laws against various types of sexual relationships. In 18, and then chapter 20 kind of highlights those same things, but then lists out the penalties for engaging in them. Um, 18, interestingly, if you read chapter 18, it, it's really sort of palatable to our modern sense of what is appropriate sexually. And if anything, that just kind of indicates how much Leviticus 18 has shaped modern Western culture with respect to things that we think are appropriate and inappropriate. So in there, you're going to find laws against uh, adultery, bestiality, child sacrifice, incest, homosexuality, and polygamy. Right? You read chapter 20, it lays out the penalties for engaging in these things. Now, in our modern times, we read chapter 20, and we're like, wow, these guys were harsh. These guys were harsh. Now, we're going to revisit the two, the two prohibitions in Leviticus 18 about, against homosexuality and polygamy because they're going to come up next week as we look at kind of the arguments from the other side. But what's important for us today is in Leviticus 18, we are actually given a why. We're given a description of why God is giving these codes in a broad sense. So first one is in uh, 18, 1 through 5. And it says, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. This comes up again. At the close of Leviticus 18, he says, Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled, for the land has become defiled. Therefore I have brought you, I'm sorry, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you, for the men of the land <clears throat> who have been before you have done all these abominations, right? And then he says, and the land has become defiled, so that the land will not, will not spew you out, should, or I'm sorry, so that the land will not spew you out, should you defile it, as it has spewed out the nation, the nation which is before you. Whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. Thus you are to keep my charge, that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you so as to not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. So typically if, uh, if a text is saying something similar twice, it's, it's, a, it's a way of emphasizing it, right? Don't do these things that they do because if you do them, you will become defiled like they are. And the things that they have done are why I'm kicking them off the land, purging them out of the land, right? So, these two sections offer us a key understanding of why all these weird laws are in Leviticus, which don't make sense to us. God wanted his people and their worship of him to be apart from the beliefs and practices of the various peoples in the region surrounding them. Does this make sense? So God is prohibiting these things that were considered normal in Egypt and in Canaan. So all the things you see in Leviticus 18 where he's saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. That's exactly what the Canaanites in particular 
and Egypt were doing. For example, it was common among the Egyptian pharaohs to marry their siblings. It was just common practice. That's how they preserved the line. Uh, where is it at? Ramesses II even married his own daughters. Not stepdaughters, his own daughters. And the Canaanite practices were despicable, ranging from cultic prostitution, incest, to child sacrifice in worship of Moloch. And you'll find these things, these stories interspersed throughout the Old Testament, like don't sacrifice your children like they do. But it goes way deeper than that. And, and at the end of the day, when you understand the Canaanite religious cult, which was a worship of this god called Baal, a demon called Baal, they were actually just imitating their gods. So there's a, um, should have changed. There we go. A gentleman by the name of Clay Jones wrote a, a paper, and, and he says, like all ancient Near East pantheons, the Canaanite pantheon was incestuous. The god El, considered the father of the gods, had 70 children by Asherah. From that union came Baal and his sister Anat, with whom Baal had sexual relations. After Baal reported to his father El that Asherah, his mother, had tried to seduce him, El encouraged Baal to have sex with her to humiliate her, which Baal did. Baal also had, as a consort, his first daughter, Hidrek. None of these incestuous acts of the gods is presented pejoratively. So, the Levitical, the, the Levitical laws, which seem weird to us in this context, um, is God fencing off sex and all things associated with it. Bodily emissions, menstrual cycles, birth, etc. And saying, these things, while good have nothing to do with your corporate worship of me as God. Does this make sense? Um, so some examples of fertility cults from that day. So these are going to be some archaeological images, PG-13 to R, depending on uh, how you would rate them. Um, so the first one is the Eutroba Cave, also known as the Womb Cave. And this is located in modern-day Bulgaria. Um, and this is a great example uh, of the ways in which sex and religious practice were linked together. Um, it dates from about 1000 BC. So on a map here, so here you've got Italy and Rome, right? So down here is where the nation of Israel would have resided. Um, and this is really old. 1000 BC is, is, is where they're dating this cave to. So it, it was a fertility shrine used by the Thracians. Here's what it looked like. So if you notice... It was a natural form cave, and then they went and, and carved it to look like a woman's vulva. Right? And then from inside the cave, there was the, the every, every day at noon, the light would shine in the cave and form a phallic image, which you can see in the second one. And on the spring equinox, once a year, the, 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 the image from the light at noon would actually reach all the way to the end of the cave. So this is a this is a really helpful way of understanding how how paganism integrated all of these ideas of sex and birth, etc., and they were they were inherently connected to their their understanding of the gods, quote unquote, and worship. Make sense? 
So this one, again, dates back to 1000 BC, but this is, a, I think, a really helpful way of just framing the, 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 the wider culture that God was working to distinguish his people apart from. And so in this context, those, those weird laws start to make a little more sense, don't they? So the second one we're going to look at, and there's only, there's only three. This one is from Egypt. It dates a little bit later. Um, I want to say maybe the turn of, uh, you know, 1 BC to 1 CE, kind of in that time frame. But it's a relief uh, from the, the temple of Hathor, which is in Dendera, Egypt. So that, to give you context, right? So we were just up here, right? And so this is down here. Right. And, and so in this one, what's interesting is you see uh, an image of a woman giving birth and, and on each side of her is the goddess Hathor, which is the goddess uh, associated with fertility and, and birth, etc. And you, you can see the god the goddesses are helping her to give birth. So even in Egypt, these ideas had very religious connotations, very religious connotations. And so, again, Looking at this, you begin to say, okay, well, why did God make these purification rites for women and children after birth? Well, because in the pagan religions, those things were inherently tied to their religious understandings of worship, etc. And so God was creating a, a, a demarcation line. These things are good, but this is not how you worship me. Um, last one is... Uh, from the remnants of the temple of Dionysus, uh, located on Delos. Um, and so context, right? First one was up here. Second one we looked at was down there in Egypt. And so this one's on an island off of uh, Greece. And uh, this one dates back to 300 BC. And so the god of Dionysus was the, the Greek god associated with winemaking, fertility, theater, madness, and general revelry. And that word revelry that is used in the Greek is also translated in some of our English translations as orgy, the god of orgies. And so he was, uh, he, he was oftentimes depicted in uh, what's the half goat person type of thing, right? That, that he took on some of those imageries. Um, and some of the images he's portrayed as having a very long and, and ginormous erect penis. I mean, it's very explicit. So, when you see his temple, notice the phallic structures that decorate it, right? So it's pretty evident, like, what did it look like to worship Dionysus? Well, clearly his, the, the, his cultic worship took on cultic prostitution and, and forms of orgiastic sexual, sexual kind of drunken parties in worship of Dionysus, and he was actually a very popular god among the Greeks and the Romans. And there's multiple uh, temples throughout, spread throughout that, that were dedicated to him. So in summary, um, while we may not understand all the details of the Levitical prohibitions, and while some may remain confusing, it's best to understand them in the light of the backdrop of this depraved, the, this depraved perversity of the region, which includes sex rights, child sacrifice as part of worship. So this is why I say it's very important that when we read scripture, we don't impose our modern sensibilities without first asking the questions, okay, what was the context in which they were dealing with? And there's a giant historical distance between us and them, right? But the, but the things that the Israelites were dealing with 
that we see in Leviticus are also very similar to the things that we see the New Testament dealing with coming into Greece, Rome, etc. You see that through the worship of Dionysus, Aphrodite, etc. And so the apostolic instructions about sex followed the Old Testament pattern. And they drew, being Jewish, right, the apostles drew from the Old Testament laws and codes around sex, sexuality, proper expression, etc., and began to instruct the church on what it looked like to, to worship, know, live with, serve God, and how our bodies and our sexuality, etc., um, were meant to, to function in that capacity. Um, and so just like the, uh, the ancient Israelites were being addressed with the Levitical codes for these purposes, so you find this similar thing with the New Testament uh, apostles in regards to their instructions to the church. So, for example, um, the Olean church was instructed uh, to follow that same pattern of differentiation and separation from the larger cultural views about sex and what was morally acceptable. So if you've read Paul's letters to the, to the church in Corinth, right, this is where it was located, and there was a temple there to Aphrodite. And so when Paul is telling them not to sleep with prostitutes, what he's referencing are cultic prostitutes associated with the worship of Aphrodite. And he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of God? Right? You're set apart. You're distinct. Don't. And, and so, of course, as the, Christ, as the church grew and Christians began to kind of follow the apostolic instruction, which did mark them off from their surrounding cultures, that led to what? Conflict. And we see this uh, noted in, for example, 1 Peter, right? He says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles, which the non, right, the pagans do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, there's that word revelry, right? Drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're what? They're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they what? Malign you. Do you notice a parallel here? especially in our current culture. So the New Testament had a concern for what we do with our pants because the Old Testament had a concern for what we do with our pants. And God cares about what we do with our pants because he's concerned that we worship in ways that are honest and true and in line with who he's designed us to be. And so the weird Levitical codes, the New Testament instruction, which are really drawing on those things, the reason Christianity has had a concern for these things is because God has always had a concern for these things. And he's setting us apart from really what would be amount, what would amount to demonic and all, all manner of depraved and twisted ways of false worship. Um, so now we're going to turn, right? So this is kind of the setup just to answer the question, why, why does the New Testament, why has Christianity, why does the Bible seem to care about you know, what, what we do with our sexuality, what we care, um, how we think about gender, how we think about marriage, etc. And so now we're going to shift and we're going to talk about the traditional position. We're just going to kind of lay out this three, there's three main uh, points of condition, uh, contention that are kind of under dispute. And again, this is going to feel like review and that's okay. But where this is important is next week, we're going to look at, again, those arguments coming from the other side and having this kind of in our fresh in our minds. It's going to help us to better understand how to how to interpret, respond to, and maybe even see some of the either strengths or weaknesses of the arguments that are coming in, uh, in 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 terms of uh, in opposing this this traditional view. Uh, so the first one is gender. The traditional understanding of gender. Um, honestly, it's really not 
super complicated, right? Genesis 127. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, right? There are males and there are females. Both are made in God's image and likeness, equal in dignity and value as God's image bears. And male and female are not these ethereal kind of concepts. These are uh, created incarnate bodily realities that are determined by our biology. God created them, male and female, right? And these are, and when, when, the reason I say they're not ethereal concepts is because one of the things we're going to see is there's been a shift where we don't take our cues from what, what historically we would say was God's providential plan or God's providence in terms of I was born a man or I was born a woman in accordance with God's providence, which comes to me from outside, right? We might say nature determines this. And the, the modern shift is we've gone inward to the secret sacred self. It's no longer what is out here that defines me, but I define me in accordance with how I feel. You notice the turn there, right? This is why I say gender is not this ethereal concept. It is a incarnate bodily reality that's determined by our, by our, by our, by our, by our, by our biology, which is how God providentially works these things in his creation. Uh, oh, and secondly, um, and this becomes important, and we're going to see this next week especially, sex and gender are not two different things. They're the same thing, right? Now you can still say, well, gender is has certain cultural nuances, and that's fine, but nevertheless, like at its base... Our biological sex determines our gender, and it's either male or female, right? And again, so it's not complicated. That, that's just basically been the position of the church, and when I say this, I mean this in all sincerity, um, across all orthodox uh, denominations up until about 1950. I mean, so let that sink in. So for the 2,000 plus years of the church, this was the view up until, historically speaking, yesterday. If that, that should cause pause. Um, so gender. Second one is proper expression of sexuality. So again, not, not an uncommon thing. This is review. Not complicated either. It says, then the Lord, uh, the Lord God uh, said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs. Um, and the word there, rib, is a weird translation. It's actually, the, the word is more like his side. And it, it just gets translated. It took his side, almost, like, and closed up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord took, God, take, God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. When the man said, then the man said, this is, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So Genesis 1, 18-25. And so based on the creation of our first parents, Adam and Eve, who were made male and female, the, the biblical narrative, right, and what you see kind of playing out through all the laws leading into the New Testament and replicated there, is that the proper expression for sexuality is in the context of a relationship between a man and woman who are husband and wife who are joined together in a covenantal union of marriage. And it's just historically how it's always been understood. 
You see this in the New Testament, for example, reflected in Jesus' instruction with respect to divorce. So he's asked the question. I'm just going to read the red, right? And he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them what? Male and female. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So when Jesus is asked a question about appropriate marital relations, etc. What's he do? Have you not heard? He points back to Genesis. Right? You also see this in the Apostle Paul. So when Paul is writing to Corinth, and Corinth was a hot mess of a church. Right? And he's dealing with this question of sexual morality and temptation. And so notice what he says. Because of temptation and sexual morality, what he's saying, like, look, if, if you don't have the self-discipline to control yourself so that you're not going and sleeping with prostitutes and getting in all manner of mess... He says it's better to marry than to burn, right? But notice how he frames what is the proper expression for sexuality. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband, right? He's very specific. And in the Greek, that holds true. He's using the words for man, and woman, or husband, and wife, and they are gender specific, right? It's not like somebody else. Like, it's very specific. Husband should have a wife, a wife should have a husband, Right? So you're seeing Paul kind of hold this idea up and instruct the church in accordance with the, the, the longstanding tradition. And additionally, Paul's guidance to the church at Corinth assumes, I'm sorry, uh, is, is assuming all these things like I just mentioned. So lastly, we're, we're almost done. The third point of contention is this idea of distinct roles for men and women. And so this is drawn out of a couple of different texts, but we're going to look at uh, the, the two key ones, for example, from the Old Testament. So you got Genesis 1, 27, 28. I'm just going to read through the highlight. So he, God commands them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Um, and then in Genesis 2, where it kind of swoops down, you get a more, if you will, a closer view of what God is doing in this, in this act of creation. You see him creating um, uh, the woman, and presenting it to him. And, but, but before that, he says, it's not good the man should be alone. And he says, I'll make him a helper fit for him. So on these texts, uh, drawing from them, this is typically or commonly known as complementarianism. This idea that uh, men and women um, are different by design. And that these differences have, uh, have certain essential qualities to them. And, and, and that word essential is important. We're going to see this. One of the things in the modern kind of discourse, and if you were here last week when I was quoting from, I think it's Judith Butler, um, she's arguing for the opposite view, that there's nothing essential. There's no essence. Remember Sartre? Existence precedes essence. There's nothing essential. There's nothing um, definitive about what it means to be a human being or a male or a female. Now, the biblical worldview takes a different posture. It says that there is an essence to what it means to be a human being. We've been made for God and for a purpose and with meaning, right? And so it, it views gender in the same way, that there is something essential to that and that those, those differences do matter. Um, now, Eve is presented to him as a helper, and tasked with multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it, right? And, and while there are, and you have to acknowledge this, there are, there are grievous abuses of this view. Um, we have to understand that it's based on the basic recognition that men and women are different, and they serve differing roles 
specifically as it relates to life of the family. Now, if you were here for the one series on the distinctives where I covered some of this stuff, this will be a little bit of a review. But our modern age with its various uh, technologies mitigates it um, against the recognition of certain just base realities of existence. And here's what I mean. Um, devices that were created to allow women to no longer have to stay at home when they're on their menstrual cycle is a relatively modern invention. Prior to that, if you were a woman who had gone through puberty about once a month for seven to 10 days, give or take, right? You were going to be stuck at home and you weren't going anywhere because you were bleeding. Right. And so our modern technologies have mitigated against this. Second one is birth control. Birth control is a major thing that has changed the way we think about sex and sexuality. And, and, and so prior to birth control and all those various technologies, right? Um, sex was, sex was something that definitely could lead to pregnancy. That's not the way we think of it anymore. Um, one, one writer said we went from primarily viewing uh, particularly female bodies as fertile as our default way of thinking to now the default way of thinking about ourselves is infertile because of how these technologies have changed the way we think about sex and sexuality. Um, another one is formula, baby formula, modern invention. Prior to that, if you had a child, how, did, how, how was that child fed as a newborn? Breastfeeding, right? So now I'm not knocking these technologies. I'm not saying, oh, these are bad things. I'm just trying to help you see, like, if you swipe all that stuff away, like, imagine the, the power grid fail. Boom. None of this stuff is getting made anymore. Very quickly, very quickly, nature as God created it is going to rush upon us. And men and women are going to go, crap, we're really different. <laughs> and if we're going to try to raise a family, it's pretty clear that we're going to have to do different things. Right? Does that make sense? And so when we say men and women are different, there are essential aspects to us made and designed by God that shape how we as men and women, as husbands and fathers, right? As, 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 and, and, and wives and mothers are going to effectively raise and care for a family. Now, again, our modern technology kind of blurs that, but you remove all that and pretty quickly it's going to come flying back in our face. So when it's easy to dismiss these traditional kind of views as outdated, they're not outdated. They're not outdated. All those things are still true of us as men and women. We're just ignoring it and we've been enabled to ignore it. Um, but reality has a way of kind of kicking back. And, and so it, um, we ignore it at our peril, if you will. Um, so anyway, beyond these, though, there's also the fact that God has tasked the husband or the father um, as the one who is primarily responsible over his wife, children, household, family, etc. And this is seen throughout the Old Testament narratives, beginning even with Adam and Eve. So if you read through Genesis, after they sin and God shows up, who does God address first? Adam. Who, somebody said? Adam. Adam. He says, Adam, where are you? Calls out to him. Now we think, oh, whatever, that's that's not important. It's like, no, it is important. Like it's it's communicating something to us. You see it replicated again. When 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 God calls Abraham, he speaks to Abraham as the head of his clan, his household, and he says, You 
come follow me. And wherever Abraham goes, his household goes with him, right? But he speaks to Abram and tasks him with being faithful to follow him and do what God asks of him. Um, you also see, uh, for example, the idea of the husband and uh, father being tasked with primary responsibility for his family or home uh, in the New Testament. And it's clearly seen in a number of Paul's commands um, with respect to husbands, wives, and children. There's a number of different texts we could look at, but I think a key one is Ephesians. So he says, wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. That's not a popular verse today. Then he says, husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, sprinkle, without blemish, right? In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Notice that verse keeps popping up, right? He's drawing, they're drawing on this Old Testament story of the creation account in Genesis. And then he, he makes this interesting statement. This will come up. This is an important statement. We're going to revisit this um, at least once or twice next week. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then lastly, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So this patterning is replicated in the church where, um, and we're not going to dive into this, uh, but, but you do see this, this idea of certain offices, specifically the office of elder, pastor, um, or um, shepherd, as being designated for a qualified and called man. And again, so what I'm saying, this pattern of responsibility is replicated and it's shouldered or put on the shoulders of the man or the husband, etc. Um, but again, for our purposes, we're just going to stick to this context of marriage because it's, it's, more, it's the one that's more re related to the topic we're in. So we see the wife being tasked with Submitting to her husband as head. Uh, the meaning of headship is debated uh, in contemporary scholarship, but most of the semantic debates over this word are honestly pretty frivolous. And, and what I mean by that is when you actually look at other texts where the headship of Christ is talked about, it's kind of hard to read those and then come back to this one in Ephesians and say, well, headship doesn't have anything to do with, let's say, responsibility and authority. Um, so, for example... In Colossians 1, oh, yeah, I was saying here, the, this, this idea of submission to the husband is, is tied to this idea of the husband being the head. So I wanted to highlight that. And then we're going to highlight where the texts talk about the headship of Christ. So the first one is Colossians, right? He, being Jesus, is head of the body, the church. And then it says, in you, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's kind of what Paul's saying. Like the husband's the head to present the wife, right? Blameless and pure, right? Now, could if Jesus is the head of the church and this is what he's doing, can Jesus do this without also having authority over the church? No. No. No, right? 
So another text is uh, in, from Colossians as well. Now holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So again, Jesus is the one who establishes, nurtures, cares for, builds his church. He's responsible for it. Can Jesus exercise his responsibility for the church without also having authority over it? No. <clears throat> and then Ephesians 1, right? Talking about Christ, right? He seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. That's the place of what? Authority. That's the place of authority. And gave him as head over what? All things to the church. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And so when you begin to look at these other texts and you see that um, the way the Bible actually talks about the headship of Christ, all the semantic debates about what Paul's referencing with respect to the husbands being heads of the wife kind of just falls away. Because there's no way that we could say Jesus is the head of the church without also acknowledging that Jesus is also the one who takes both responsibility for and has appropriate authority over the church to fulfill his responsibility to care for his church. Does that make sense? And so again, when we look at what what the text is saying with respect to the differences in, in gender and the roles that are that are that are take place there. We do see the scripture emphasizing that, that the husband or the father is in in some specific way answerable to God for how he cares for his wife, his family, his children, etc. He is tasked, he is burdened with that responsibility. Now, if you pay attention, Paul says. The appropriate way a husband or a father is to exercise that authority is what? Like Christ does. Like Christ does, which is to die to self, to be to serve, to care for, to nurture, right? To build up. Um, and, and so men, historically, we stink at this. <laughs> like we stink at this. As a pastor, I can't tell you how many relationships between husband and wives I've seen fall apart. Because the husband's a shirker, right? He just keeps kind of pushing. I don't want to die, you know. And, and that's what we do. Men want to shirk. And then women will take it up because it's not being done. And then the guy's like, well, cool, I don't have to do it. Yeah. And then the wife gets angry and bitter towards the husband because the husband's not doing the things that he should be doing. I mean, am I, am I crazy or am I, is this a recognized pattern, right? And so what God says is don't shirk. Be responsible, take care of your family, right? But he also commands the wives, be submissive. I've also seen relationships where there's a woman who through fear, woundedness, she probably had a, a crappy dad, right? Had really struggles to submit to her husband and it creates a lot of conflict in the marriage. And, and so these are, these are here's, here's what I mean. These dynamics are so ingrained in us this is why when you watch TV shows like The Simpsons and the dynamic between Homer and Marge, it's funny. Anybody watch uh, Everybody Loves Raymond? The reason we recognize those characters and we get a kick out of them, like the, 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 the meddling matriarch, right? Controlling. And the grandfather who's like, ah, just leave me alone, right? 
And, and Raymond kind of has that same pattern. This doofus of a guy doesn't really, he's trying, trying to avoid having to deal with everything. You see his wife kind of going around having to clean up all his messes. <laughs> and we recognize that as what? Dysfunctional, but we think it's funny because we relate to it. Um, married with children. If you're old enough, do you remember that show? Bud and Sue, was it Sue or Peg? What was the name? Peg. Peg. Right? Same pattern. Continually being replicated in sitcoms. And the reason we recognize the pattern, we, we, we notice it as dysfunction and we laugh at it is because we see ourselves in it. This is what I'm saying. Like when, when we try to like just kind of discount this stuff as, oh, that's traditional, it's that's outdated, whatever. It's like reality has a way of kind of kicking back. And there are essential things to us as God made us. And if we ignore them, we ignore them to our peril. And so part of, part of this discussion um, that we're in is, is that these are not incidental or inconsequential issues. Uh, I'm going to bring the, well, as we look at that kind of arguments next week, we're going to see that they're, they're really attacking this traditional view of gender, this traditional understanding of the appropriate expression for sexuality. And they're also attacking this essentialist notion that there are real differences between men and women. And those differences matter. And, and they do shape the way we interact with one another. And, and we, and when we ignore those things, we ignore them really to our harm and detriment. And I think what we're going to see as the decades roll on is an increased experience of the consequences of the decisions that we've been making. I mean, we're already seeing that in, in the skyrocketing rates of single uh, children being born out of out of wedlock who, who don't know their fathers, um, the high rates of divorce that we're seeing in our culture and how that's affecting and impacting things, and the, the, the explosion of pornography and how that's affected our society and perspectives on things. Like, it, it's a hot mess. And... By engaging in these things, there will be consequences, you know, down the end. And we're already starting to see them. And, you know, by God's grace, maybe some things can begin to shift and course correct, but that's going to take time, you know. So we're already kind of on the downward slope of the slide. It's just a question of how far down we're going to go. But there's really no way out of this that's going to be clean and uh, lacks any sort of, let's say, pain that we're going to experience as a culture, a society, et cetera. But individually, where this is important is if we can understand these truths and orient our lives around them, then we can mitigate against these things encroaching upon our lives, individually as families and then collectively as a church. Um, because the church is going to be needed when the paycheck comes to be cash for all the stupidity that we've been doing. And, you know, and historically that's played out numerous times in historical cycles where societies would collapse and then the church is there to kind of pick up the pieces and and rebuild society. Um, but we're like the uh, the Israelites in the book of Judges. We just keep circling back around on this like merry-go-round of <laughs> foolishness and sadness. Um, but anyway, this tradition of you, like I said, has been the one that's been held by the church, broadly speaking, up until about 40, nah, maybe 50, 60 years ago. Um and so these changes that we're dealing with now are seismic. They are um, massive changes and shifts in the way that we think about gender, the way that we think about sexuality, and the way that we think about what does it mean to be a man and a woman, especially as we relate to one another in the context of marriage and, and rearing and raising children. Um, 
So say a brief prayer, and then if there's any questions, we'll spend a few, just a few minutes on those. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Father, I pray more than anything else that we would trust it. Um, sometimes it's, it's difficult to understand the wisdom in things that we can't necessarily uh, fully grasp the reasons for. Um, but Father, I pray that you would give us humility and help us to, to trust you and your, your word over against us. Lord, that we would trust the wisdom of the church. Um, Lord, that we would not have a certain kind of modern chronological snobbery thinking that because we're here and, 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 and these people existed before us that we're somehow more intelligent and we've got things figured out. Because um, at the end of the day, uh, we may be wearing different clothes and, and driving in cars. We really haven't changed much um, at all. And so the issues that are still relevant for us are the issues that were still relevant for them. And so I pray that we would look back through history and we would find wisdom in our forebears and we would understand that they, they put fences up in certain areas for reasons. Um, and when we remove those fences, uh, we don't know what we're letting in. And so, Father, we pray for uh, mercy, grace, and wisdom, and as well courage uh, to hold fast to the truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.